G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Please keep 1 Corinthians 4 open in front of you. That's going to be the main one that we're working through, as I've said. Um, and have a look at verse 10, would you please, with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10, very memorably holds Paul out as our, well, what would you say, our great example, our exemplar. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 10, we are fools for Christ. And kind of scathingly, by contrast, you, O Corinthians, but you are so wise... Um, there's a bit of, he's got a bit of tude, a bit of attitude um, in, in this passage with the Corinthians, doesn't he, Paul, in the way he comes across? And the implication is, what are you doing? It ain't right. The Christian life, O Corinthians, is the foolish way, the Christ-like way, the kind of ridiculous, the scornful, the dorky, the daggy. We are fools for Christ, says Paul. Now, um, I'm sure you remember me telling you um, at least some of the stories of how I became a Christian from a, a non-church going home back in my teens. And so this phrase, we are fools for Christ, let me just say that does not mesh well with teenage anxieties and hang-ups and kind of what you think is, is good in the world during those teenage years particularly. The last thing anyone wants when they're 15, 16, 17 years old um, is to be a fool I don't mean a larrikin. Everyone loves a larrikin. Larrikins are great. They're funny. They're likable. They're lovable. Who doesn't love a larrikin? But a fool? You know, the butt of jokes, um, the not invited to things. That's social suicide to be a fool amongst peers, amongst girls, before the bullies. Um, Anyway, back when I was figuring out my faith in the first place, some of the Christians that I came across, uh, they had this very odd idea that 1 Corinthians 4 was kind of calling them to be dorks simply for the sake of being a dork, um, at least that's the way it seemed to me. As um, So if they did any lousy, lame, naff, yawn kind of thing, well, I'm a fool for Christ that's, and I'd wear it as a badge of honour, as if that was the goal, to be a fool um, in itself and that 1 Corinthians 4 was calling them to that. Um, Christians ought to be as dorky as they can. It was kind of this fanatical little bent that they had, at least that's the way I understood it. So if their youth group, for instance, did any lame old thing instead of some age-appropriate engaging stuff, well, we're fools for Christ, you see. Um, Or if they kind of liked infantile sort of shows or songs or whatever and their friends were paying them out for it, well, we're being fools for Christ. Or if if they tried to evangelise their friends through some ill-advised dress-up skit or prank or stunt or whatever and it fails dismally mostly because it was a crummy idea rather than for anything else well fools for christ anyway the upshot was that this phrase fools for christ it kind of became to me a bit of a, a naff joke in itself i came to believe that these dorks were putting on their silly stunts and that they could do that if they like but and here's the kicker But on the flip side, I was pretty sure that in the main, you could live a respectable, well-liked, healthy and secure Christian life and that Jesus wouldn't want it any other way. Brothers and sisters, 1 Corinthians 4 calls me for the fool that I was in thinking that, I reckon. And I put it to you that being a fool for Christ is neither optional 
nor is it avoidable, and if you're presently doing a pretty good job of avoiding the charge, uh, well, perhaps it's a timely message for us all. Can we pray together as we come to 1 Corinthians and chapter 4? Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning, once again, we spread out our lives before the scrutiny of your word, expecting to be called to change. That is what happens every time we come before you, O God, and it shouldn't be any other way. An encounter with God has got a bite. But Father, this morning we are particularly aware that our lives do slide into patterns and paths of least resistance. We do what we do very often, not for principled reasons, but because it's the easiest way and the smoothest path and it creates the fewest ripples and troubles and headaches. But Father, we would rather learn to live lives that matter rather than lives that just merge in with everyone else. So please grant us this morning listening hearts and heads and an openness to challenge perhaps even long-established norms in us, both individually and as a community of your believers. Father, may our lives bear greater resemblance to Christ's for our time in your word this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, surely uh, the clue to what today's passage is all about is there in verse 1. Have a look with me there in verse 1. So then people ought to regard us, that's who's writing? It's Paul and Sosthenes writing, but he's been writing about Paul and Apollos and Peter and, you know, the other preachers and missionaries. So then people ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Simple then, right? It's, It's a passage, isn't it? about the public perception of Christ's apostles, how they're seen, how should we view them? Well, we should view them as servants of Christ. Um, So then people ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. It's a passage then, surely, about what accurate PR for Christian leaders, how they're seen and understood and known in the world. These are people, O Christian community, please get this straight, whom Jesus has given his gospel to, the secret things of God, and told them to go and share it with the world and say, that's how you should view them. Except that's not what this passage is about overall, as we're going to come and see. Not really. Paul starts, yes, with the public perception of Christian leaders, that's true, but by the end, uh, well, it's a different matter altogether. Um, Peter O'Brien, a um, a New Testament scholar, you might have read some of his books, they're wonderful. Peter O'Brien once put it to me that every time in Paul's writings that he zooms in on his own task as a Christian leader, even his own task as an apostle, every time he zooms in, focuses in, goes really hard at that, every time he zooms in, he then uses that image for what? Have a look down with me at verse 15, because this is where the passage gets us to. Verse 15, uh, halfway through, in Christ Jesus, can you see it there? In Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. In Christ Jesus, I, Paul, became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to what? To imitate me. Or down in verse 17, so I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, imitate me, verse 16, for this reason, to make sure that you do imitate me, that is, for this reason, I am sending Timothy, my son, He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus. So I put it to you, brothers and sisters, that this is 
no attempt, this chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, it's no attempt to fix our perceptions of the apostles. It's a passage to shape the very pattern of ordinary Christians' lives by looking at the apostles. Just as Paul seems to zoom right in at his peculiar task uh, before the Lord and his charge, therefore I urge you to imitate me, he says to the Corinthian church. Now, I have three lenses to help us to do this as we look at 1 Corinthians 4, uh, as Paul scrutinises our lives, or the Corinthians' lives at least. Three lenses, and I'll tell you what they are. Number one, he wants us to see our lives in terms of an evaluation beyond time. Secondly, he views the Christian life in terms of values from beyond here and now or values from beyond this world. And thirdly, he views the Christian life within a family beyond biology. So, evaluation beyond time, values from beyond the here and now world and family beyond biology. Those are the three lenses. Come with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1 and we'll pick it up there. So then... Men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Secret what things? We're just going to have to get our heads back in 1 Corinthians, aren't we? Secret what things, brothers and sisters? Remember chapter 2, the secret things of God that only God knows within Himself and that is revealed by His Spirit, that life-changing, life-shaping, simple message of Jesus crucified, that's the secret things of God, the message that Jesus has come into the world. Paul is just saying he means he's heard the gospel, folks. He's heard it, he's believed it, haven't you as well? Staked our lives upon it. Jesus died and rose for me and that's the message that I've received and heard from God himself to bring me to God. So, verse 2. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little, he says, if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear. That doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He'll bring to light what's hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. So you get the sense that this part in the passage that the apostles, or that Paul in particular, are very much under the scrutiny of of these Corinthians. But just have a look at verse 3 there with me, would you please? Verse 3, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human. How many of us can honestly say that? I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human. I care very little if I am judged by what the girls think or what they say when I'm not there to hear it. I care very little what the fellas reckon or how they'll laugh. I care very little what my boss thinks or what he says to his boss about me. Paul isn't even tormented, is he, by the court of his own mind. Have a look at verse 4 again. It's remarkable. My conscience, verse 4, is clear. But that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. I tell you what, he'd sleep a bit better than most of us, wouldn't he? He is not tormented by the court of his own mind. Regarding other people, um, this is Ed Welch, regarding other people, our problem is that we need them more than we love them. The task God sets for us is to need them less and love them more. And Paul's saying, well, the recipe for that is 
view your life in terms of Christ's evaluation beyond time, do you see? Not ultimately in terms of even your own conscience's assessment, nor in terms of um, the opinions of those around you, even if they're judgmental Corinthians taking apart an apostle. If I truly count myself that I'm a servant of Jesus, body and soul, that he entrusted me with his gospel, Paul is saying, and that I stand or fall based on this question, how did I do for you, Jesus? Not, how did I go, girls? Not, how did I do, fellas? I think Welch is right. Regarding other people, our problem is that we need them more than we love them. We need their praise. We crave being liked. We need their friendship. We can't bear to let them down or suffer their displeasure. Um, A dear friend of mine was talking with her mother... Um, about her weight, as in her weight, not her mother's weight. Um, Or more to the point, her mother was talking to her about her weight, if you kind of take my meaning. Um, And the conversation turned to a particular item of swimwear and her mother's comment was, oh, you couldn't wear that on a beach in Thailand. Now, I think that that comment says a whole lot more about the mother than it does about the daughter or even the daughter's weight, to be honest. But as to whether the daughter that my friend, as to whether that, as to whether she allows that to crush her, well, to whom must she answer in life ultimately? Not her mum. Now I know that Paul's not talking about body image here. I do think it's a thing that we need to be get used to and get good at talking about as Christians. But that's not particularly what's on view. I use that by way of illustration. What about on the ministry front? when disgruntled parents complain about this or that detail of youth night or of Sunday school, when visitors come along to church and vote with their feet and never come back, when one of us offers or uh, receives criticism um, from one another, uh, however delicately or poorly put, can we view it in this life? Not so much in terms of what are they saying, as if they are the highest court to which I must answer or to which you must answer. No, but... Okay, I can hear what they are saying. Even so, what will Jesus say? Because he will say something in the end, do you see? Don't run your ministry like the highest court that you answer to is public opinion. It'll sink it. It is the Lord who judges me, verse 4. It is the Lord who judges me. He will bring to light what's hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. So, an evaluation beyond time, which is liberating. Secondly, we've got to weigh our lives in terms of values from beyond our world, values from beyond uh, the here and now, which is not an easy thing. Have a look at verse 6 with me. Uh, And we're going to have to get our heads again back in the Corinthian situation there a little bit. The Corinthians, do you remember, they loved their factions. Why were they arguing about leaders? It's because they liked to be able to line up over who had which leader. My little clique had Paul and yours had Apollos and that one had Peter over there. Uh, Well, um, what's uh, what's the picture that he goes for? Actually, I don't want to get to that bit. Let me just read from verse 6. Oh no, yeah, so what, what we need to appreciate is that before we read verse 6, notice what Paul has effectively said to them in those first five verses, because he's saying, Corinthians, you realise that Apollos and Peter and I, we just don't care ultimately about your assessment of us. 
All right? So you might be fussing over who's your favourite leader. You realise we don't really care. Anyway, verse 6. Now, brothers, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, don't go beyond what's written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, then why do you boast as though you didn't? And now he gets into the values from verse 8 and following, some concrete values. The image that we need to have in mind here is of a, a parade, a parade marching through the, 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 the streets of Corinth there with kings at the front and then nobles and officials all the way down to, well, we'll see in a minute. Let me read this, um, this little bit to you because I think it captures the image for us that we need as we go into verse 8. So here we go. Probably the imagery was drawn from the triumphal processions of returning Roman legions. The senior military people would come first and then the more junior ones behind them, the prisoners would be dragged along in descending order of rank. Among the defeated foes, the lowest classes and the slaves would bring up the rear, eating everyone else's dust, knowing that they were destined for the arena. There they would die at the hands of gladiators or would simply be thrown to the wild beasts for the amusement of the populace. Now, we might recoil at that, and rightly so, I'd want to say, as part of the cultural imagery that Paul can draw on because they'd seen it before. So, verse 8, already you have all you want. Notice which end the Corinthians are at. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've become kings and that without us, how I wish that you really had become kings, so that we might be kings with you, biting sarcasm. Verse 9, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ but you are so wise in Christ. Now, can I just insert a little phrase here so that we get the kind of force of the rhetoric? We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. What gives, O Corinthians? We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, but we are dishonoured. Guys, what gives? Verse 11, to this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth and the refuse of the world. And that that scum, that refuse, the thought there is, if you tread in something, walking along a footpath, tread in something and you need to scrape it off, that's the refuse. That's the scum the muck, the do. Yep, that's the apostles. But you Corinthians, oh, look at you. What gives, guys? You guys want to have your cake and eat it too. You want to have the gospel and you want to have the good life. Now, what were the values that he particularly picked on? Financial security, that was there, wasn't it? Uh, Verse 11, was it? Hungry and thirsty, we're in rags. Uh, That uh, work with our hands there in verse 12, us apostles, we're working with our hands Please don't think of that as like a a practical, rugged kind of guy, you know, muscular and together and uh, apprentice come master builder. No, it's more 
The flavour is more the jobs that you wouldn't steer your kids into. The flavour is more garbo man, worker at the local tip. We aren't admired because we're apostles, Paul's saying. But when we're slandered, we're kind. And the value there is, I don't have to defend myself. I'm not desperate to be seen as in the right all the time. I don't have to be vindicated. There are a few values. Now, from here, I think what we normally do is, we ask something like, well, if Paul were here amongst us, looking at us uh, with this little list in front of him, would he say the same thing of us? Come on, guys, you're acting like kings. You want to have the gospel and, uh, and the good life as well. What gives? But I think there's another way that he's given us in this passage, hasn't he? Because, do you see, Paul has given us a set of contrasts. I think there's another way. Paul has given us contrasts. He's actually saying, look, Whatever values that you're living by at the present time, O Christian, someone ought to be saying what gives. Whichever values you're living by. The only question is, will it be me asking what gives or will it be the world? Will it be Jesus at the end saying, I'm looking at your life, looking back, what gives? Or will it be the world on the way through? Why are you living like that? So if the world, let's just have a look at those values, if the world looked over our financial matters right now, Christian, over yours, would they scratch their heads, would the world scratch its head and say, what gives? Why why are you managing your money like that? Why on earth are you throwing money down the tube into this gospel business? Don't you want to live securely? Don't you realise how much you have to pack away in the modern age? for retirement? Don't you want to live comfortably? What if something goes wrong? You're nuts to be spending your money like that. 10% of your income is ridiculous. Why are you giving that much to church or to missionaries or giving up that day a week that you could earn good money in paid work? Instead, you're giving it to train people for Sunday school. Why are you doing that? Do you see? Someone will be asking the question of what gives. Now, that's just one example, but isn't Paul giving us, showing us Kingdom values are not worldly values. So if the world never asks, never has pause for thought, why are you living that way? Then whose values are we really living by? You can't have your cake and eat it too. So an evaluation beyond time, values from beyond our world. And lastly, we're back where we began with family that goes beyond biology. So from verse 14 and following, we need to get that um, family goes beyond biology. And the key point here is, across the Bible, family is used so much and so richly, right, in all sorts of different ways. Uh, But here, the point is not about belonging, it's more about behaviour. Here, the point is not so much about inheritance as it is elsewhere, but it's about imitation. Whose child are you? because we may need to unlearn some family patterns of behaviour that we've picked up along the way. From 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 14, would you have a look there with me, please? I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. That is, you were converted under my ministry. For in Christ I became your father through the gospel, therefore I urge you to imitate me. 
Bear the family resemblance, you might say. For this reason, verse 17, I'm sending to you Timothy, my son. Um, He's not actually Paul's son. He bears the family resemblance. That's the point. I'm sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He'll remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Now, folks, with this passage, we're going to leave behind um, Corinthians for for now, perhaps until um, spring next year or thereabouts. Um, But this series, if it has shown us nothing else, I hope it's shown us this, hasn't it? If we believe that Jesus died for us, the message of Christ crucified, chapters 1 and 2, if we believe that Jesus died for us, died because there's more, there's something more important than preserving our own comforts, because there's something more important than enjoying our own pleasures, than savouring life's best. If, Jesus, if we believe that Jesus died for us because there is something more important than ensuring against any mishaps that might befall us, there's something to come that makes that stuff pale into insignificance. If we believe Jesus gave his life because he valued the salvation of perishing souls more than anything else, then gosh, my life ought to look like it. It ought to look different for that conviction, shouldn't it? Uh, So you might remember me quoting John Patton, you know, missionary to the Pacific Islands, if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. (laughs) That is, in a safe and respectable grave. He makes the point, and in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours, in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. If we believe that Jesus gave his life for the salvation of souls, then gosh, my life ought to look different. But more than anything else, we ought to remember not John Patton, we ought to remember how Jesus saw out his earthly life. And I say this not just to those of you who are sort of retired or over 60 or over 70, no, how did Jesus, a relatively young man, see out his life? He didn't grow old comfortably. No, his values, his eternity, his father, his family would never allow him that. Would Christ's pattern of life, if he were amongst us today, would it sit comfortably in our midst? I urge you, says Paul, to imitate me. I reckon we're not there yet, are we? We're not there yet. But are we still convinced of this, that whatever the cost whatever the changes that it takes, however we look in the end in the eyes of our world, even if it shortens our life or hurts our bank balance, there is no better way. There is no more pressing priority on this planet at the present time. There is no more beautiful life than a life lived for Christ and like Christ. Can I leave you with this? Until the end of the age, we will take up our cross. That is, we will die to self-interest daily to follow Jesus. The less any society knows of that way, the more foolish we will seem and the more suffering we will endure. So be it. There is no other way of following Jesus. Can we pray together? Our great Father God in heaven, our God, the one who is just and yet who justifies the ungodly in Christ. Father, we confess before you today the vast, that yawning gap that lies between the lives that we live, um, even between the lives that we long to live, if we're honest, 
and the life that you would have us lead in Christ Jesus for the sake of his name in this world. Lord, where do we start? With our tongues? With our time? With our money? With our morning habits? With our weekly routines? Oh God, you are Lord over every pocket of life, the whole thing. And we, like Paul, we are your servants. We have neither his particular gifts nor his peculiar calling, but we share with him what matters most, the wisdom of Christ crucified, that message that has come down to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, may that gospel continue to turn our lives upside down and may we rejoice as it does so. Father, take more and more of us, we pray. Bend all of us to your sovereign plans and purposes. And in the end, may we have cause to remember with gladness the things that we let go of and gave up and stopped caring about or poured ourselves into for the sake of Christ. Lastly, Father, we are your family. And so we ask, please teach us to tease this stuff out together in community to not leave it here within these four walls, but grant us that sweet combination of guts and grace to strive for change together and yet be patient when it seems so long in coming. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.